Today we're starting with a special message from our friends at the Shut Up Cameron podcast. Hey guys, have you been looking for a new podcast that talks about everything from mental health to music, movies, conspiracy theories, and so much more? Well, now you found that. We are the Shut Up Cameron podcast, and we're here to brighten your day whether you're feeling down or whether you're just having your normal daily struggles, because we want you to know that you're not alone, and we're here to make you laugh. So please check out the Shut Up Cameron podcast everywhere podcasts are found at Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, and of course, Anchor. Daddy, Daddy, I have something to say. Um, please listen to my daddy's podcast. Um, he needs to pay me and I want money. Welcome to the Pilot Podcast. Where we watch the pilot episodes of TV shows and answer your question, should I watch this? My name is BJ. And my name is Me Too. And this week, we're checking out Be Our Chef on Disney+. Plus making the cut on Amazon Prime, Next in Fashion on Netflix, and Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness on Netflix. So stay tuned to the end to learn if BJ will become a chef, be the next great fashion designer and stylist, or get into a feud with Joe and Carol and Doc. Why not all of the above? ¿Por qué no los todos? So let's start with my journey to becoming a chef by heading into Be Our Chef on Disney+. Plus. This is a reality cooking competition series hosted by Angela Kinsey. You'll remember her from The Office. And this is all about five food-loving families who are in Disney World, and they are competing in Disney character-themed food challenges. And so it's going to go in a round-robin competition, and the family with the most wins will end up going on a Disney cruise vacation. Yikes. Tell us how you really feel, me too. You just can't go on cruises right now. I'm sure when they were working on this, cruises were still a viable vacation option. Mm-hmm. All right, Beach. how did you feel about the show? I think this was a nice, fun, family-friendly cooking competition. It gave me vibes of Nailed It with Nicole Byer on Netflix as well as Lego Masters on Fox. Yes. Where you have some kid-friendly concepts. In this first episode, it's Cinderella-themed. And while there is a competition and there's the competitive nature and people want to win, you don't really feel bad if someone loses. Like, we're all in this together. It felt incredibly low stakes, which I loved, because... So much is happening that I think I've been actively avoiding stressful television, and this is peak, just pleasant TV. And apparently, each of the theme songs for the episodes is based on the theme of the episode. So this week's was Bippity Boppity Bon Appetit, and we'll get to hear different theme songs based on the princesses or other characters that they'll cook for. That's really fun. I liked how they incorporated the Disney characters. So in this episode, the Meryl and Robin's family actually go talk to Cinderella, which I think was mostly for these little girls to meet Cinderella. But they did spin that into interviewing her to find out what she likes to eat. Yes, they found out that she likes cheese because that's what the mice would make for her, a cheese plate. So they need to magically transform that cheese into something more gourmet. Yes, my impression was... 
that these families were not recruited for this show, flown into Florida to film. I think they were just on the Disney lot and asked to sign up for this. Was that the vibe that you got from this as well? Yes, it definitely felt like five families who were already at Walt Disney World for a vacation. Maybe they got one of those seven to 10 day packages. Mm. And while they were there, Disney said, why not compete for more Disney vacation time? (laughs) I didn't even think about that. You're already here. May as well stay. It makes me think of, I don't know if you ever went to Disney World Beach in your youth, but I did. I went on a school trip there once and they did recruit students from my class to do one of their shows. I can't remember the name of the show. It was an early 2000s reality competition show. They had to answer questions and it was actually filmed. So I wonder if that's a thing that's always happened on the Walt Disney World lot. So what did you think of the actual cooking portion of the episode? I thought the food looked as good as a whole family coming together, making a meal could look. Because this show did a cool thing in that the kids were just as instrumental in putting the meals together as the adults. So instead of just having them sprinkle a little razzle-dazzle parsley at the end of a meal or something, they were chopping the vegetables, they were cooking the perfect egg, they were thinking through the meal, helping to assemble it. And with that comes limitations of how nice your meal can turn out when the whole family is part of it. And of course, they were all amateur cooks. So the meals looked accessible, but tasty. Well, what did you think? I liked how they were able to take this inspiration from Cinderella. So like with the grilled cheese and elevate it by using multiple types of cheeses. And the carriage. Yeah, they designed a whole bread bowl carriage. So they're really taking things that we're used to. But even now it's trendy to have like a fancy grilled cheese. So they incorporated that into their meal. The hash was nice. I always love a good sweet potato mixed into my hash. They really tried to make it more than your sure daily family breakfast or lunch. And I think the chef, which is really cool, they had a Disney chef, Chef Douglas from the boardwalk, who actually came in. And not only was it cool to have a real chef doing the judging, but I think he gave legitimate critiques as well. True. And the last thing I'll say about the show is the kids were so charming. I love that they made room for the kids to be funny. Every single one of those daughters said something at some point in the show that made me laugh out loud. Yeah, the interactions with the kids were well done. I think they found a good balance of focusing on the competition and the cooking aspect and the host, but then giving those few moments for the kids to just be kids. Oh, and before I forget, actually, a quick shout out to Angela Kinsey. She brought exactly the positive energy you need for such a positive bubbly show. Yeah, she matched her energy perfectly for this kind of show. So, Beach... Are you ready to rate Disney's Be Our Chef? One quick question before we do that. Mm. How would you feel if your prize was collectible Cinderella pins? Well, if I were a child, I think I would be happy. If I were one of their parents, I would be a little bit miffed. What about you? I would be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I think even as a kid, I may have expected a bit more. Yeah, just a pin. Really? (laughs) Okay, now I'm ready to head into our ratings for Disney Plus's Be Our Chef. What would you give it, Beach? I would give this would watch while doing laundry. 
I think you brought up the good point that right now, lighthearted television is very appealing. And I think this has that fun vibe as well that I'd have it on in the background. Maybe while I'm cooking. Ooh, maybe you can put a pound of bacon in your next meal. I would rate it would watch with family. I think this would be for our listeners a great watch for the whole family. And then a slightly more adult version of this, adult in the sense of adults are featured, not like inappropriate in any way, is Family Cooking Showdown, which is on Netflix and is a BBC show. I would recommend that if you're looking for a slightly less childlike vibe. It's the same concept where a, a whole family is recruited to cook a meal. Some of them are good at cooking, some family members not so much. And it's really funny and charming and low stakes because on British shows, you can't have monetary prizes. So everyone really is just in it for bragging rights and to do their best, which I love. So now let's switch from families just trying to do their best to fashion designers competing to be the next global brand in Making the Cut on Amazon Prime. So Making the Cut actually reunites Tim Gunn and Heidi Klum. And this show features a global cast of competitors And they're based out of a New York hotel. But for their first competition, they're whisked away to Paris to have a runway show in front of the Eiffel Tower. And we get to watch them compete, but also explore a new city, a new culture, and deepen their skills. Judges include Naomi Campbell, Nicole Ritchie, Kareen Rotfield, and Joseph Altazara. And one interesting thing about this show is they don't have to sew all of their own clothes. Each competitor is assigned a seamstress. How did you like it? I thought this was a very realistic take on building a fashion brand, which I appreciated, where these are the idea people. These are the creatives behind a fashion brand. So it was really interesting to see how they think and more about what inspires them rather than who has the best construction skills. What do you think? I agree with that. And because this show has them really think about where their clothes will be featured, be it for high fashion runways or for sale on the Amazon marketplace, we really get to see them dig deep into that creative side, but also that strategy side. What is high fashion enough to compete and stand out on this show, but still accessible so that someone scrolling through Amazon wouldn't be too intimidated to purchase this look for their day to day? Yeah. And I think you bring up something that I had a question about, and I'd like to get your opinion on. In this first episode, their challenge was to come up with two looks that kind of encompass their entire brand, their style. And one was a high fashion runway look, and the other was an accessible look. But to me, someone who's not very literate in fashion, sometimes I couldn't tell which was which, and sometimes neither of them looked accessible to the layperson. There were some as well where the high fashion look to me felt very accessible, Um, not in a bad way, but just I would want to wear it. We can get into our favorites a little bit here. I loved both of Jiwon's looks to me looked beautiful, but it was difficult for me to just imagine them just on the street, even though she is the streetwear designer. I know that's the look du jour, but walking around in my day to day, I don't think I would see someone in that. Nicole, on the other hand, I loved her looks. She did a tie top and a poofy skirt for her accessible look. And then this 
really nicely fitted suit for her high fashion look, but I thought both of those I could easily see someone wearing. So maybe we're just not the right fashion minds to judge this, but I loved the fashions that I saw, and I can certainly appreciate something that looks pretty, whether or not I can imagine it appearing in my everyday life. Exactly. I'm at the point where I just say, that looks really cool, and that's where I stop. Ooh, another one I loved actually was, I loved Sabato's look as well, his final runway, y'all. He did this really intense, dramatic funeral chic. Again, not something I've seen anywhere, but I loved it. There was a little bit of a reveal moment where a hood turned into a cape. 10 out of 10, that look. I'm kind of speaking to your point about maybe we don't fully understand the runway versus accessible versus what is fashionable. Can we just stop and talk about Martha from Richmond, Virginia? We could actually host a separate podcast where we just sit down and talk about Martha for one hour every single day. That is definitely possible. She is a bubbly, eccentric person. I think when I saw her clothes, I was thinking she kind of looks like she's going for a mermaid vibe. Yes, that's exactly right. With the iridescent colors. Yes. And sequins. She has a loud color palette. Mm. What did you think of her approach to expressing her whole style and brand. I thought she didn't go for it. So in the runway, listeners, she went for this wild pattern, which did stick out against the other folks who went for more neutral colors. But even though she had this colorful pattern, it was presented in, I would say, kind of a safe way. And you didn't see any of the glitter or the sparkles or the sequins, whereas the other designers, I thought, got to the heart of their looks with their two pieces, whether or not we understood them for runway or for home. But hers felt like a conservative version of her looks. And I thought Tim Gunn, because he did a great job in this, like he's always done, like he always did on Project Runway, of helping to point out things that could be improved. And I thought he gave he gave her a warning, like this is not enough. This is like a child's dress. And she ignored Tim Gunn and stuck to her guts. And in this case, wasn't a great choice, I thought. And the outfit that she wore before the judges was much more compelling and better expressive of her style than the two ones that she sent down the runway. Though Nicole Richie liked the high fashion one. That was interesting in that Martha's own personal clothing and even the clips we've seen of her like back home working, those out fits were much more exaggerated and bold. And that made more sense for the style she was describing than what she actually created for this competition. To borrow a phrase from judges on every single competition show in existence, her clothes told a better story that she wore in her confessionals and in her home tapes than the ones on that runway. She needed to like shine. And the the other contestant who struggled was Jasmine. Yeah, so her point of view, which she's already established her brand in Malaysia, is that she wants to use nice flowing fabrics that can then be flattering to different body types, body shapes, all women. She describes it as size fluid. And I think she was really struggling with how do you express a style that fits anyone in just two looks? Yeah, it's tough because one of her looks was just see-through silk. And so she just needed to put 
something, anything under it, even just a bodysuit on the model so that it's a little bit more compelling and like more like JLo's red carpet look and less like if I tried to pull off putting on one of my sheer curtains and walking outside. (laughs) I also think that because she talks about she herself being limited with her access to fashion because she is fat. And so she doesn't get to experience more fashion because there isn't enough size diversity in fashion. So it also feels like a little bit of a chicken and egg thing where she should have done better in better clothing and fitting her clothes to her models. But then conversely, she just doesn't have the same access as the other competitors do. Yeah, she was already starting behind everyone else, which leads into a very interesting structure for eliminations in this show that they can eliminate zero to, I guess, technically all of the contestants in a single episode if the judges Mm -hmm. feel so. Yeah, I thought that made it interesting and injected some interesting spice into the show. And the last thing I want to talk about before we go into our ratings is Naomi Campbell should judge everything. She was perfect and is perfect. It was really fun seeing her and Nicole Richie, who just seemed like she was picking out clothes for herself. Yeah, Nicole Richie went shopping, which was also charming. And I think that she is still underrated as a performer and entertainer. She's so good on the show. Great news. Y'all have to watch that on Netflix. It's just two seasons. It was unfortunately canceled. But much love to Nicole Richie as well. She's fabulous. So me too. What would you rate Amazon Prime's Making the Cut? I would watch while folding laundry or cooking or doing things around the house. This is a really entertaining show, compelling, fun, bring something new to fashion competition shows. It'll be a great thing to watch while you're at home. So I agree that this is a nice change to the fashion competition genre. I'm only familiar with Project Runway, which I didn't even really watch. So for me, this is would not watch again. But I would say anyone who does like when you add that reality spin on fashion and seeing cool clothing, this is definitely a great show. And I think the designers that they selected all have really unique looks and styles. And you're going to see some cool clothing come out of this. Yes. Me too. The morning I wake up, do you know what I reach for? A photo of me so you can start your day with a smile? No. Yes. No. Yes. I make sure to brew a cup of coffee to fuel my day. Nice. Any recommendations on coffees I should try next? Yes. Fruit of the Bean Coffee. They offer great flavors like breakfast blend and hazelnut, and they wait until after you order to roast the coffee beans so you're getting the freshest product possible. Wow. And better yet, they donate 10% of their income to supporting orphans and those affected by human trafficking. And right now, with the world going through a tough time, Fruit of the Bean is offering 20% off all of their coffee. Where can we learn more? Just head to fruitofthebean.com and order now. Beach, now that you've injected some Java into your system and you have a better pep in your step, let's head back to the fashion world with Netflix's Next in Fashion. Sounds good. So this is another fashion design reality competition series, this time hosted by Tan France and Alexa Chung. And here they've selected 18 designers, also from all around the world. So I guess we're very global with fashion this year. Mm-hmm. And they are competing for $250,000 that they can invest into their business so they can become a major fashion brand in collaboration with a luxury fashion retailer. And in this first episode, what's interesting about it is we actually watch them pair up in teams of two. 
So in Making the Cut, it was about showcasing your own individual style. But in this show, they had to try to showcase their individual style while being complimentary to their partner. Yeah. And also in contrast to Making the Cut, these guys actually have to do all the sewing. Yes. It all took place in one room. Literally. In Making the Cut, you were at a hotel having breakfast in New York, and then you were told dinner's going to be in Paris. And your fashion shows in front of the Eiffel Tower. In this case, Netflix was like, come in this lot. Your fabric is on the left side of this room. The sewing station's in the middle of this room. And on the right side of the room is the runway. So don't worry, you never have to leave this one space. Isn't that so convenient? But I liked the hustle energy of having to run back and forth from the fabrics and having to sew your own stuff. And we got to see them display more of their talents. And you could see which ones of them, of course, are rising to the challenge and and meeting this with a greater drive versus other ones who were faltering. One of the prob- one of the problems as well was the fact that some of these pairs were super complimentary and some weren't. So some of these folks were lifelong friends who weren't doing well together. And some of these folks had just met for the first time and were hitting it off great. Yeah. So they had two days for this first challenge to create a red carpet look. And as Me Too was saying, there were combos like Daniel and Carly, who had never worked together, but had really good chemistry. And then teams like Isaac and Nichelle also had never worked together, but they were conflicts from the very start, even when they chose what fabric to use. Isaac was like, I'm cool. I'm a streetwear designer. So Isaac had this ego, which I think affected his relationship with Nichelle because she did all the sewing. He just walked around. He thought he brought enough brain power to this and his creativity would just shine through. And it is interesting to see how many of these competitors decided to check their ego versus letting the ego do the talking or lead them because they all came from backgrounds where they were all pretty established designers. A lot of them had gone to really fancy fashion schools. A lot of them had already worked for celebrities, had already had successful brand launches. They're just not yet household names. And so that was an interesting part of the show is that they're taking these people that have already gone pretty far in their careers, but they're having trouble getting over that last step to become that household name. And this is a great bridge to get to that place. Yeah, and it makes sense that these would be the people who would be the ones to break out. You know, they have Mm -hmm. the experience, they have the talent, they're building their clientele, but they just need one more push. And in the same way that there was a practicality in making the cut of what they could see realistically selling on Amazon, similarly, because the judges were mostly stylists, there was a practicality in which celebrities would actually wear these looks. There was a lot of name dropping. (laughs) And (laughs) but the judges were making sense. The celebrities that they named that they could see wearing the more successful looks, I thought were really believable. As soon as they said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's totally something I could see that person wearing. Exactly. They had a good idea of who you would literally make these clothes for. And I think that's an important thing for all of the contestants to keep in mind is not only do I make things I like, but this is a business and people need to buy and wear these clothes. Yeah, there's such a practicality in both this show and in making the cut versus in other creative shows where you're just showcasing your talent and you're just showing off what you're capable of and what you believe in. It's also just a consumer driven business. Yeah. 
You need to make things that enough people will like to keep you in business. What were some of your favorite looks? So I think we had the same favorite team, Angel and Minju. Yes, that pink flowing dress. So dramatic and gorgeous. They took inspiration from, I think, Korean and Japanese fashion. And it was just stunning. The color of the fabric really just helped it pop as well. My Red Carpet Hive listeners, as BJ knows, I don't think I've shared this on the podcast. I don't really watch award shows, but I do watch the red carpet. I love red carpet looks. And that pink dress really reminded me of Lady Gaga's Met Gala look, the pink coat that she put on during her four outfit reveal on the carpet last year. Mm. And that's funny that you bring up Met Gala, because I think one of the outfits we were both disappointed in, they referenced that if someone wore this to the Met Gala, how are they going to walk up like 80 something stairs? Yes. So... So, of course, the team that struggled was Isaac and Nichelle. And the dress that they sewed onto this model, she could not get out of it. And so Tan turned to her with that practicality that has been such a theme of the show and was like, can you move or breathe or do anything or even go to the bathroom? And the model said, I have not been to the bathroom in five hours. I have to go so badly. You can't do that to people. No one's going to buy a dress like that. That's the definition of creating a concept that's interesting to you and not something that anyone could actually put on their bodies. Yeah, just looks good on paper. Although fun fact in Greece, when Sandy does her reveal at the end in the black leather jumpsuit to show Danny that she's like a cool biker chick now, the outfit was so tight that she had to be sewn into it as well. I thought you didn't like musicals. I love Greece. It's one of my favorite movies. It's like one of the most popular musicals. I can like a musical, I just don't like watching many. All right, Beach, are you ready to rate Netflix's Next in Fashion? Sure. I would give this a similar rating to Making the Cut, since I'm not into fashion design shows or really fashion in general. Sorry, guys, I wear a lot of plain outfits, but you can't see that, so it's okay. (laughs) I would also recommend this show for people who are into fashion like Project Runway, reality fashion competitions. This one, I think, will be more for people who want to see the designers creating it. So you spend more time watching them sewing. You have the scenes of, oh, no, will I sew this in time? Or, oh, no, I ripped some fabric. So if you like that kind of drama and stress, this is a good show for you. I agree. I don't think I'm going to watch both this and Making the Cut. If I were to choose one, I would choose Making the Cut. But a show I would recommend to our listeners very, very strongly is on Netflix, and it's called Styling Hollywood. And it follows stylist Jason Bolden and his husband, interior designer Adair Curtis. And they they have all of these celebrity guest stars that they style for and they interior design for. And it's a quick few episodes not that long each, goes by quickly, 10 out of 10 would recommend if you're looking for a fun, quick-to-consume fashion show. Because Next in Fashion was also long. Yeah, an hour and nine minutes. Yeah, it's not playing around. All right, Beach, let's leave fashion behind, but not wild looks, because we're going to Florida with Netflix's Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness. Tell us about this documentary. I'm not sure how to describe the show because I feel like it happened to me, but from what I can tell you, 
Tiger King covers the underground world of private zoos and so-called sanctuaries and rescues, and we hone in on this main conflict between Joe Exotic, who I would say is the center of the show, and he's also a private zoo owner, and Carol Baskin, who runs a rescue and accuses Joe and Doc and other private zoo folks that we'll meet throughout the series of abusing their animals for profit. And this is a seven-episode miniseries that spans five years. Yeah, we start the show, we see Joe Exotic in jail making a collect call, and then we flash back to kind of see where this whole conflict started between Joe and Carol. What'd you think? I loved it. I thought the show was really fun. Each character was stranger than the last, that you don't even have time to process what's happening. Someone says something wild. Then you meet the next character and you think, okay, maybe this person will be the straight man person who's commenting on everything. No, they say something wild. And then it just gets weirder and weirder. And you think, okay, I can trust Doc or I can trust Carol or I can trust this person or that person. But they all turn out to be ridiculous, ridiculous people. This is as close to getting on a roller coaster as I want to be. That's what this show felt like. What was your impression of it? I think that's a good description. It's definitely a wild ride where you're meeting people you probably wouldn't interact with on a regular basis. And just to interject for our listeners, we are calling it a show and characters, but this is actually a documentary with real people. So these characters, they seem out of the box, wild, unbelievable. These are real people with big cats. Yes. And I like that it's bringing us into a niche area of the world that you probably don't really think about. Like, I've never stopped and said, I wonder what it's like to run my own private zoo with over 200 tigers. But this show has now made me realize that's a question I did want to know the answer to. And also that that universe of people who asks that question or cares about these things is huge. We learned that Carol has like 2 million followers on Facebook and hundreds of thousands of of YouTube subscribers and millions of YouTube views. And Joe is wildly popular himself, had a local TV show. Mm -hmm. Shaquille O'Neal makes an appearance in the first episode as having visited Joe Exotic's private zoo. And so this is a world that for me, I was very unaware of. I took a single animal and ethics class in college, and I learned that there were private zoos. And I learned that the biggest number of big cats are actually in captivity in the US. But I think it was just different to see it. Yeah, like I was at least familiar with there being a very large population of privately owned big cats in Florida. But I had no idea the circumstances or the actual way in which they were being kept or the the type of people who are keeping them, mind blown. And speaking of these types of people, they each have such devoted followers, both in these hordes of fans that tune into their shows and their YouTube videos and their social media posts, but also their own staff. Their staff are all underpaid or unpaid volunteers who wholeheartedly believe in their mission. It's kind of like a cult. Someone in the show even compares this to cult-like behavior. Joe said that if someone tried to take his tigers, it would be a mini Waco. Those are the words of a cult leader, explicitly. Scary stuff. And y'all, the missing limbs, 
the missing limbs. If I walk in to work at a zoo for a job interview and half the people there have prosthetics for like two or three of their limbs, I would two step out of there quickly. Joe said these animals are very loving and they just want to be petted and have some affection. While Carol then says they will quickly turn and snap on you and kill you. So it's 50-50. And she said that was beautiful. She was like, the beautiful part about tigers is they can be so loving and caring in one moment and then turn around and snap at you. And she said, wouldn't it be incredible to have that kind of range? Wouldn't it be incredible to have that kind of speed? Mama, what? You don't want to be a big cat? No, I don't want to be near them. She dresses in animal print exclusively. I want to make this podcast a podcast where one 12-episode arc is going to be Carol. The next 12-episode arc is going to be Joe. The next 12-episode arc is going to be Doc. And then we start over again because I'll have new thoughts. 36 episodes later, bring it back. 12 episodes on Carol, then Mm -hmm. Joe, then Doc. And then we need the whole Joe versus Carol because that's the whole central premise is that Joe went to prison for murder for hire because it's suspected that he was trying to get Carol killed. (laughs) (laughs) And then... Their beef is fascinating because when you look at their facilities, neither looks great. They're both accusing each other of doing the same things. Selling tickets, exploiting animals. But I guess the main difference is Joe breeds new animals and Carol just waits for her rescued ones to die in the cage. Yes. So that is a key difference. And I think I think a point for Carol in that You should not breed new wildcats domestically in your private zoo. I don't think that's a controversial statement to make. We do not need more tigers coming from backyards. Very true. And we see on the show that these backyard zoos are detrimental to communities. And we've all heard cases of tigers being found roaming highways, roaming gas stations, because they just walked out of the backyards or were let go of the backyards of people who wanted big cats, and we learn on the show that tigers are very sweet and cuddly until about 12 weeks, and then they become big old tigers, and then they let them go. It's very wild. And you see even the tension with Joe and his park, the Greater Wynwood Exotic Animal Park, and even his community. Like The police are just waiting for issues to come up with him and people trying to trespass or conflicts or injuries. It's literally a ticking time bomb. And he's really tied in with the community. Y'all, recommended reading is you have to find Robert Moore, spelled M-O-O-R on Twitter. He wrote an article about Joe a few years ago and spent several years with Joe and that community. And one of the things he writes is that he called a cop investigating something that happened with Joe. And then Joe called him saying, why are you asking this cop about me? which means Joe is so embedded in the community that a police officer let him know that a reporter was sniffing around about a case. Yeah, I mean, we saw Joe has his own security. He has 24-hour cameras. He's filming everything. Like, if something's going on with his zoo or his cats, he's going to know about it. And then we don't have to spend too much time on this because I think we need to head into our ratings soon, but... Doc is an entirely other character that also breeds cats and has a private zoo and hates Carol and feels close to Joe. And he's also in with the Hollywood film industry. Mm-hmm. Terrible. Use CGI. Great example of that, Life of Pi. CGI Tiger. 
Or Lion King. We see in the first episode that a child is bitten by a tiger at Joe's Zoo. Carol talks about that. Mm-hmm. It blows my mind that entire families show up to pet tigers. I was completely unfamiliar with that culture. Because they see the cubs as kittens, like house cat kittens. Mm, is, so that's what it is. They're cute. Yeah, they're cute. They're still small. Like they don't have three inch teeth. So you're like, oh, let's cuddle. Wow. Okay. I I really learned. I did not know this was a thing. Yeah. Now you know. Yeah. So what would you rate Netflix's Tiger King? Would watch again casually. Mm-hmm. There is a lot going on in just this first episode because it's wild. It's unbelievable. It's fascinating. So I'm going to have to pace myself to get through it. But I do want to see how this all resolves. What did you think? I agree. As BJ said earlier, listeners, I couldn't hit stop. I was like, let's roll into this next episode. Typically, we refrain from that. I jumped in, didn't care. Um, And I would recommend you do the same. Watch all of the episodes of this show. This is just fascinating. And there you go. If you want to find more recommendations, head to our website at thepilotpodcast.com. And you can subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And for deep dive episodes, go to join.thepilotpodcast.com. That's where you can sign up to listen to our exclusive episodes that contain deep dives into single pilot episodes of TV shows. Our last deep dives have been Apple TV's C, HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show, Hulu's High Fidelity, and our next upcoming deep dive is going to be on Netflix's Elite. So go to join.thepilotpodcast.com to sign up. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at The Pilot Pod. You can send thoughts, feelings, any information you have at all about big cats and big cat rescues, please. That's going to be the next topic I'm very passionate about, I think, to askthepilotpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.